Well, it's uh, great to be with you tonight. Thanks for coming out. And uh, the subject I have before you tonight is very dear to me. Actually, what happened was uh, our oldest child was three years old, 30 years ago now, and I got an assignment to come and preach on family worship in South Africa. And I began to study that subject. Wow, was that an eye-opener when I looked at the English Puritans, the Scottish Covenanters, and I began to realize that I was following the old Dutch tradition of reading the Bible with my family every day and praying, but they would sing and they would talk to their children every day. And that intrigued me, and so I, I, did, I ended up spending well over 100 hours preparing for this talk, and it changed my life. It changed the way I did family worship, and I felt burdened to pass this message on around the world to different groups of people, and I'm privileged to be with you thanks to my great relationship with Pastor Scott, uh, who I really got close to in New Zealand a few years ago. And uh, I'm so grateful that he's invited me to come here and speak on this tonight. And I look forward to preaching for you on Sunday morning as well. So turn with me to Joshua 24, Joshua 24. And I'd like to just read verses 13 through 18. This is Joshua's farewell message. He's a hundred years old when he brings this message, and I'll just pick up near the end of it where he says this, verse Joshua 24, 13, and I, this is the Lord speaking through Joshua, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you built not, and you dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards which you planted not, do you eat? Now therefore... This is now Joshua speaking to the people. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve, or you could translate it, worship ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to worship the Lord or serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve or worship whether the gods which your fathers served or worshipped that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve slash worship the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage in which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore, will we also serve or worship the Lord? For he is our God. Let's pray. Lord God, bless this time together. And I pray that every single family represented here 
particularly the fathers, would be absolutely persuaded in this address of the need to do daily family worship. And that this address would not only persuade them to do it, but also show them something of how to do it. And that those who are doing it may, from this address, learn various things to encourage them to press on, but also to to do it better and to do it more biblically. Help us to learn also from our forefathers who've gone before us, from, from Joshua all the way down to the Reformers and the Puritans and others who have modeled it so powerfully. And we thank thee, Lord, for the hundreds of thousands of children that have been converted over the ages through their father exercising family worship. May their tribe increase also in our day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today if you walk into a bookstore and you uh, look around and you gravitate to the section on church growth, you'll find a plethora of books. How you grow your church, how you can get people in, how you can keep them in, how you can get strangers from off the street to come in. Wonderful. A lot of it's good material. But what you'll look for in vain in these books, sadly, there is no chapter in any of them on family worship. You see, when you grow a church, you're not only looking for people from the outside to come in, you're also looking for the people who are on the inside to keep their children in church, that they grow up and they become teenagers who love the church and, and then become adults and marry, hopefully within the church, and become the backbone families of the church who are grounded in the church. And what I'm saying to you tonight is that internal church growth in particular is fostered when the children's education, be it homeschooling or be it Christian education, the church and the home and family worship all work together. In the Dutch circles, we call this a triangle. The Christian school, the Christian church, and the Christian home. And the foundational plank of the Christian home is the daily family worship in which the father has a leading hand supported by his wife and they talk to the children every day. Through the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, talking, explaining, counseling, encouraging, warning, inviting, alluring, so that the children see the gospel mentored, modeled, lived out by their father, by their mother. Every day, they feel the reality of the gospel. Now, my parents were very godly people. And my dad did do family worship every day. But he had a very special family worship on Sunday evening where we would all sing. Everyone would pick out a, a psalter to sing. 
We'd always sing two stanzas. We had five kids, so that's 14 stanzas with the parents. And then we would, we would, uh, my dad would pray, read the Bible, meditate on it a bit. And then he, he'd actually pick up Pilgrim's Progress and read a few pages of that. And we'd sit at his feet, we'd ask him questions. Often he'd lay the book down and he'd teach us about how, how the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the sinner, which is a lot what Bunyan does. And he would often do it with tears. I mean, his whole heart was in it. So when my parents commemorated their 50th wedding anniversary, all five of us children agreed we wouldn't talk to each other ahead of time, but we would record this, not knowing that my dad would die on the pulpit just two years later, went straight from the pulpit to glory, literally had a heart attack in the pulpit, fell over and went straight to glory. But we decided we'd record it for legacy's sake and that all five of us would thank my mother for one thing and then we would thank my father for one thing. And what was incredible, none of us would have predicted this, all five of us thanked my mother for her secret prayer life. She's always on her knees. We always saw her on her knees crying out to God for, for every one of us. But all five of us thanked my father for the particular Sunday evening elongation of family worship. It usually was about an hour then. Daily was 10 minutes. But we all thank my father for that Sunday evening family worship when he would really pour out his heart to us. Now, my brother just above me said to me something I never forgot on that occasion. He said this. He said, Dad, I want to thank you for those family worships because my oldest memory in life is when I was three years old, three years old. I was sitting on your lap. I looked up into your face as you were teaching us with tears from Pilgrim's Progress. And all I remember thinking is, God is real. God is real. So dad, I want to thank you that I never had to doubt the existence of God in my entire life because you pressed it home on my conscience in family worship at the age of three. How critical is family worship in your family? Could, could, could you live a week without family worship? Could you live a month? Or maybe you're sitting here tonight, you say, I didn't even know I was supposed to do family worship. In fact, we don't even read the Bible together every day. We don't pray in earnest every day while we pray for the meal maybe for 20 seconds. Well, I've got news for you. And this is not news that will, should discourage you, but encourage you. There's a beautiful, forgotten, lost art that we call a means of grace that is family worship. Family worship and daily meditation are the two major means of grace today that are neglected in most churches. And by the time I'm done tonight, I hope you will never neglect it again. I hope you start tomorrow with family worship. Now you remember the Space Shuttle Columbia tragically disintegrating during its high-speed re-entry into the atmosphere in 2003? All seven astronauts were killed. 
What you probably don't remember is that the commander-in-chief of that mission was Colonel Rick Husband. And what you probably don't know or never even read was that before they went into space for 18 days, he gave his son 18 videos and his daughter another 18 videos and said, my dear son and my dear daughter, I'm gonna leave you for 18 days and I don't want you to miss a day of family worship. So I've recorded my thoughts to you on these 18 chapters in the Bible. Listen to them every day while I'm gone. I wonder how much those videos mean to that son and that daughter today. And he left this note for his wife just before he died. If I ended up at the end of my life having been an astronaut but having sacrificed my family along the way or living my life in a way that did not glorify God, I would look back on my career with great regret. Having become an astronaut would not have meant that much at all. I came to realize that what meant the most to me was to try to live my my life as God wants me to do, to be a good husband to you, Evelyn, and to be a good father to my children. Do you realize that family worship was so common, so basic a means of grace to the Puritan forefathers that in some Puritan churches, if a father wasn't doing daily family worship, they would discipline the father and forbid him from coming to the Lord's Supper because they said he's living in sin. He's neglecting the greatest duty of being a father. Because as the Puritan Matthew Henry said, as goes family worship, so usually goes the home. As goes the home, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the nation. As goes the nation, so goes the world. He said the foundation of everything lies in family, daily family worship. He concludes saying, here true reformation begins. Now family worship is not the only factor, of course, in child rearing. You can do great family worship, but if you act like a monster to your kids and you lose your temper all the time, you're going to defeat your purpose. Family worship, however, is the foundation. And upon that foundation, we as parents are called to live out and model family worship by our walk of life, by the things we say to our children. And we're to buttress what we say in family worship by all kinds of things in daily life, as we walk with them, as we talk with them, by the way, as Deuteronomy 6 tells us we must do. And we must do it diligently, like my dad did, sometimes even to the point of tears, because he loved our souls. So I want to address you on four thoughts tonight on family worship. I'm gonna first look at its duty, Second, it's implementation, the how-tos. We'll spend most time there. Third, very briefly, some objections. And fourth, motivations. Duty, implementation, objections, motivation. So Joshua is 100 years old. He tells Israel, this is amazing. As for me and my house, as I depart from the scene, 
we will worship the Lord. I mean, he's an old man. How can he be so sure? Even if he was doing family worship every day, how can he be so sure his kids will do it and his grandkids will do it? Well, if you go back a bit further in this chapter to verse 31, it says, and Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, that is the next generation, which had known all the works of the Lord, what he had done for Israel. Did that verse ever strike you? Here's a man who's worshiping the Lord every day with his kids. He's 100 years old and he says, I formed in them what the Puritans would call a holy habitus, a holy habit. And these children will not abandon that habit. So I can say with assurance as I depart from you at 100 years of age, my children will carry this on. As for me and my family, we will go on worshiping the Lord. What a beautiful thing that is. So when our firstborn got married, his name is Kelvin. Um, I was in the habit of taking him out didn't always make it, but I tried to take him out once a month the last couple of years before he departed from our home and just talk, you know, like a man-to-man talk, a, a Christian man-to-Christian-man talk. And uh, so the last month before he was married, I had, I had a list of several things. And one note I had on there was make sure he'll continue to do family worship. But as I was talking to him, something strange happened. I thought, I don't have to ask him to do that. He's never known anything different. If I pushed my chair back after supper and said, you know, I don't feel like doing family worship tonight. We'll do, I'm too tired or whatever. We'll, we'll do it tomorrow night. My kids would have looked at me and said, Dad, what is wrong with you? Are you sick? Of course you do family worship. And of course he's going to take that on. So I actually skipped over that point on that last meeting with him. Because I said, there's no sense asking him. Of course he, that, that's, that's Joshua's attitude here too, isn't it? My, my family will serve the Lord. I don't have to ask them. They don't know it any differently. It's a holy habit. But the interesting thing is, this didn't only impact his family. Those were the days when a king or a leader impacted a lot of people. In fact, sometimes the whole nation. And so it says, the whole nation all the elders that outlived Joshua for the next generation, they continued in the ways of the Lord, of worshiping the Lord. This is amazing. Family worship is contagious. We, we love to use, uh, my wife Mary and I, we love to use family worship as an evangelistic tool. You invite people into your home after, for supper. Right? And we always, we always did family worship right after supper. And uh, when supper's done, you just say to them, I mean, my wife is a really good cook, so they, I mean, they're feeling really indebted to you at that time. And uh, you just say to them, all right, we're going to go in the living room now. We just have this short family worship, and uh, I'll show you where you can sit. You know, just sit here, and you sit there. That's great. And just join us. We, but I don't ask them. No. Well, they wouldn't say no anyway, but it's just, it's just natural. We do family worship, so please, please join us. 
And then we, we go through this four-step process I'm about to tell you now. And it's unbelievable, actually, how many people say to us later, I'm talking about unchurched people or people that haven't done family worship. They said, we've never seen anything like this. We didn't know something like this existed. And, 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 and people can pick up on it, you see. You can model it for other people. You can model it for your friends and seek to, seek to get them to start doing family worship just by your own example. That's my point. That's Joshua's point here. So what does the Bible say you need to do? Four things. Four things. Number one, the daily reading of the Word of God. Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Paul says, I know you were brought up daily in searching the Scriptures. So, I'm not even going to spend time proving this. I, I hope there's no one here that isn't daily reading the Bible with a family. I mean, it's, it's obvious, so obvious, isn't it? You need physical food every day. You need spiritual food every day. And the foundation of that, the fountain of that spiritual food flows to you out of the Bible. It'd be a disaster if you let your Bible grow dust upon it in your family. The Bible is the guide for all of life. How could you not read it every day to your family? But number two is the touchy one. This is the difficult one. Daily instruction in the Word of God. Daily instruction in the Word of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. These words which I command thee this day shall be in your heart, and you will teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, that sitting, walking, lying down, rising up, that's a Hebrew way of saying, because you do all these things every day, you will teach your children diligently the truths of God every day. That is reaffirmed in Deuteronomy 11, 18, and 19. These are all daily activities. So Moses isn't just suggesting a little 20-second prayer, Father, thank you for this food and drink, and thank you we had a good day, and no one's sick, and bless us now for Jesus' sake, amen. No, he's talking about an earnest time of prayer, a sweet earnest time of, of instruction. You're teaching them diligently diligently, with all your heart. That's number two. Number three, daily prayer to the throne of God. First Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Everything is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. And that includes eating and drinking to the glory of God, says 1 Corinthians 10, 31. All that we do must be done to the glory of God. And to do something to the glory of God, it must be prayed over. That's what these two texts combined say. So, of course, you don't partake of physical food without prayer. But you need the spiritual food just as much. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why Ezekiel says, God will pour out his fury 
Do you understand how strong the word fury is? It's the strongest possible word in the Hebrew language for the wrath of God upon the family that does not pray together. Ezekiel. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan meditating on that text said, a family that doesn't pray daily together is like a house without a roof exposed to all the storms of heaven. If you're a God-fearing family, prayer is the most sacred moment you have every day as you lead your family to the throne of grace and pour out your praises of God, your confessions, your thanksgivings, and your supplications. So that's number three. Number four is singing. Daily reading of the word of God, daily instruction in the word of God, daily prayer to the throne of God, and daily singing of the praise of God. Psalm 118 verse 15. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So this is not the tabernacle or the temple. This is, the psalmist speaking that when he's walking through the camp of Israel, he hears singing from this home and that home, singing the psalms, the psalms of praise, the canonical book that God gave for singing. This was a daily activity. Philip Henry, the father of the famous commentator, Matthew Henry, said, this is obviously a command that was deeply understood by Israel that every day they were to sing the praises of God in their own family, sing those precious psalms, or today, also precious hymns. Let the word of God dwell in you, Paul says in Colossians 3. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. He's speaking in this context to families. So there you have it. Your family owes its allegiance to God. God has placed you in a position, dad, a position of authority to guide your children in the way of the Lord. You are more than a friend. You are a friend. You are more than a friend more than an advisor to your children. You're their prophet to teach them. You're their priest to pray for them. You're their king to lead and guide them. Clothed with office-bearing holy authority, you owe to your children this prophetical teaching, priestly intercession, royal guidance, particularly in a time set aside every day by way of scripture and prayer and song. The Lord Jesus is worthy of this, God's word commands it, and I trust tonight your conscience affirms it. God said of Abraham, I know, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So you don't say to your children, do you feel like doing family worship? Joshua said, as for me, my house, we will do family worship. God says, Abraham will command lovingly, of course, 
but command his children to walk in the ways of the Lord. That demands, of course, daily family worship. So how do you implement it? How do you implement it? Well, first of all, it requires a little preparation. So what you want to do is you want to have a seat for everyone in your family, preferably not around the kitchen table, but maybe after supper is your best time too. Find whatever is your best time of the day where almost everyone can get together and have a chair for them all. Everyone has their own Bible study, preferably one with notes, um, a good one, and a Psalter book or a hymn book or both, and maybe another book that you might be using, a daily devotional or whatever. But those things are all in order. So when you go to family worship, it's not disorganized. Everybody knows where they're going. Everybody has the resources at their fingertips. Now during family worship, aim for brevity. Uh, when the children are very, very young, maybe six minutes is long enough. Uh, as they get older, 10, 15 minutes. If you have very young children and very you know, older teenagers or whatever, you might want to just do a six-minute family worship where you walk through these four things and, and then just stay on and talk with the teenagers about some of the concepts in that Bible chapter today a bit longer. But don't overdo it, especially not at the beginning. Don't make family worship a burden to your kids. Make it something that they look forward to. And don't indulge in excuses to avoid it. Don't say things like, uh, I, just, I just yelled at one of the kids and I don't, I don't feel like I can do it right now. Actually, you need it more than ever now because I need to hear you say, Lord, please forgive me for, for losing my temper at such and such a child. Don't say you're too tired. Jesus bore the cross for you if you're a believer until he was ready to succumb. You can handle a 10-minute family worship. And God will help you in the process when you lean on him. And then lead family worship with a firm fatherly hand and a soft penitent heart. Speaking with hopeful solemnity. Speaking with expectation. And let the, let, let the tone of your voice, let the way you handle family worship, Give your children the right impression that this is the most important thing we're doing all day long. This is the most important thing, Dad, you're doing as a father. And so don't let anything interrupt it. If the phone rings, let it ring. You've got an answering machine. You, you, you're an audience with God. Don't let a man interrupt your audience with God. This is far more important. Let your children feel its importance. Now, a few tips for the four parts. Number one, for the reading of Scripture, have a plan. Usually 10 to 20 verses is, is enough. Don't read a long, long chapter. Um, generally speaking, I would say you can handle a bit more verses from the Old Testament than from the New. New, New Testament is very packed doctrinally. And so maybe shorter portions from there because there's so much to say. But do be sure to read the entire Bible over a period of time. When kids are very young, you might want to focus on stories. Read the Gospels. Read the book of Genesis. It's full of stories. Read Ruth. Read Jonah. Read the miracles, parables. 
But when the kids get to be about eight years old, and they can start thinking analytically, go through the whole Bible. Maybe the Old Testament, one evening, New Testament, the next evening. Or do like the Puritans. They usually did the Old Testament in the morning and the New Testament in the evening. They did two family worships usually per day. But at least one. At least one. And remember what J.C. Ryle said. Give your children the Bible, the whole Bible, even while they're fairly young. Let the word of God dwell in them richly. Now, that doesn't mean you can't break out at certain times from the system you're doing for special occasions. Uh, I liked what my dad did every, every summer when we would go on family vacation. Get the whole car packed. We're ready to jump in and go, right? No, no. My dad said, okay, now everybody back inside. Everybody get down on their knees. And we're going to read Psalm 91 or Psalm 121 about God's protection. And then he would pray. And then we get off our knees, go in the car and go away. Oh, that just spoke volumes to us. Volumes to us. Till today, I, my wife and I, we can't, we can't go any distance on the road without saying, oh, wait a minute. We're going down to Kalamazoo from Grand Rapids. That's 50 miles. Um, let's pray. Now we pray in the driveway before we, before we go. Because that sets a tone. We want to bathe everything in prayer. We need God's protection all the time. So sometimes you break with this tradition. Maybe you're going to have the Lord's Supper that day and it's a Sunday morning. Well, you might want to read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Matthew 26. Third, involve the whole family in reading of Scripture. So we have three children. Now they're all married, happily married. Thanks be to God. But when they were home, if say I was going to read 20 verses that night, I say, okay, all of you, you take four verses. And you share. And so the kids are involved with the reading. And they know we're going to talk about it afterward. They know I'm going to ask them questions about it afterward. They're engaged. That's one thing my dad did wrong. He didn't have us read. He, he just read the whole thing himself. Then he asked us at the end, uh, what's the last word I said? Well, we had a great recall, even when our mind was off, way off. And somehow you can hear the echo of the last word, and we, and we got it right almost every time. But that's no way to teach. See, so my dad wasn't that good in that part, except on Sunday nights. But what I'm saying to you is, you want your children to be right with you as you read that chapter, because you're going to talk about that chapter. So, that also gives you a chance to teach them how to read the Bible. You don't mumble it. You don't read it in a sing-songy voice. But you don't read it like you're reading a newspaper either. You read it with reverence. You read it with accent. You read it like it is a living, breathing book. And so you teach your children. You only have to do it a couple times. So, oh, son, slow down. You're reading the Word of God. And, and, and they'll catch on. And, and besides, you're modeling that. Read it as if that book, what you're reading, is alive and in the room with you right now. Because it is. It's the eternal, unchanging word of God. And 
something we didn't do very well at, I wish we had done more of, is it would be great to pick out a verse and maybe two, three times a week and have your children memorize that verse. Especially when they're 12 or under, that memorization time is a fertile field for them. Uh, Number two, for biblical instruction. When you instruct your children each day, you wanna be plain in meaning. You wanna reach them at their level. You wanna ask yourself, what is the main thought being conveyed or the main two or three thoughts being conveyed in this chapter? If it's comfort, you comfort. If it's mourning, you warn. You're true to the chapter. So by the time you're done talking to your kids, Maybe it's only three, four minutes, but they've got the central message of that chapter. They understand what it's all about, even if it's brief. Now, here's where the biggest problem occurs, because the Puritans used to spend a half an hour in the morning preparing for family worship, and they'd come ready for it. It's very hard in our day in our society, even for Christians to do. I mean, if you want to do it on your own and you find a way of doing it on your own, you have that meditation time, fantastic. But 99% of fathers that I know of find that difficult to do. So about 15 years ago, there were a number of us that got together and we produced, it took us five years, we produced the Family Worship Bible Guide for you, Dad. And it gives you the main takeaways from each chapter. And it gives it to you in the form that you just read it to your, to your family. Take you about 45 seconds, maybe a minute. And then each one of the points ends with a question. So we, we, we take the work out of it for you. Your wife jumps in, or maybe you ask the question specifically to a particular teenage child or a particular younger child if it's an easier question. So we've done the work for you, and that's why Family Worship Bible Guide is by far the best-selling book that we've ever had at Reformation Heritage Books. We cannot keep enough in stock. We reprint them at 20, 25,000 at a time, and we've reprinted it several times. Thousands of families are using this right now, and their family worship again and again and again, we hear reports, is being transformed by this helping book. It really will help you. As soon as you finish reading the chapter, or your family does, you read the two or three points in this book. Every chapter is in here. And so by the time you go through it all, by the time you go through the whole Bible, probably take you about three years if you do it faithfully every day, you have talked with your children about every subject under the sun because the Bible talks about every subject under the sun. And this will be your greatest help in discharging your duty of teaching your own children the whole counsel of God. Now, as you do this, of course, think of ways, spontaneously as you do it, that you can apply what the Family Worship Bible Guy is giving you as a summary of the chapter, maybe things in your own life, maybe things in the life of the children, maybe things in society, that you can add to it That makes it all the richer. So be relevant in application. Maybe something in your own life that the Lord has taught you. That's great. That makes a deep impression upon your children. 
Or maybe it's something you've heard recently in a sermon with them. Another great way to apply. Our forefathers said, the father should take the sermons of, on the Lord's Day and he should weave them, weave them throughout the family worships throughout the week. So remember what the minister said last Sunday about this, this point? And apply it at their level. And then one more point here. Be affectionate as you instruct your children. The model for you, the model for you is the wise man in the book of Proverbs. And I just love this. Don't, don't you love the book of Proverbs? How he talks to his, his young people, his children, his teenagers. Uh, my son, come, come near to me, I pray thee. And uh, I'll, I'll give you understanding. And as I give you understanding, I'll give you wisdom. Or like Psalm 34 says, come you children, come near to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I mean, your kids are young. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great if you can put one child on one knee and the other child on the other knee. Put your arms around them. Have them both looking at you face, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And you're talking to them about the love of Christ. You're talking to them about the gospel. Even when they're two years old, three years old, even if they don't understand everything, they're getting impressions like my brother when he was three years old on the lap of my dad. That's why Luther said, Give me a child until he is seven. I'll let the Roman Catholics have him for the rest of his life because I will have put impressions in him. You see, so be affectionate. Be affectionate in manner. You know, I told you how my dad did it. Now, I, I need to tell you, my dad wasn't without faults. Uh, I, I sometimes wondered if he cared for anything in my daily natural life. He never asked me any questions about Anything in my daily natural life. I, my, my mother was really good at that. So it was, it was good balance here. So I didn't even know if my dad cared about what happened to me every day. But I knew one thing. I knew my dad loved my soul. Even though I wish he would have played with me more. I wish he would have yeah, cared more for the things in my body and daily life. But the main thing was the main thing for him. At least he had that. How tragic it is when parents care for everything about their kids, how they're dressed, how, they're, how, how they handle themselves socially, which is important. But don't talk to them every day about God and about their soul, about the one thing needful to confess their sin and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll leave it to the church. No, no, no. The church will assist you. The Christian school may assist you. But you are the primary responsible person to teach your children the whole counsel of God. Moses says, diligently, every day when you lay down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way. It's your duty, Dad. And your wife is to help you. So take that seriously. And don't allow anyone to take over and usurp that primary responsibility from you. And then lastly, as you're teaching them, require attention. You only have to say this once or twice to your kids. I remember one time, I was talking to the kids in family worship. I think my son was maybe six years old. And he was sitting on the couch and all of a sudden he just took the liberty to kind of lay back and slouch and he put one leg over the end of the couch and I go, what are you doing? We're in the presence of God. 
Oh, he sat right up, and that's all I had to say. You see, family worship is like a little mini church service, you see. Well, there's dialogue, of course, but I mean, in terms of the reverence, in terms of the, the setting, you're in the presence of God. You want your kids to feel that. So, so require attention. Now, finally, for praying and for singing. For praying, be short. With few exceptions, don't pray for more than five minutes. But don't pray just one minute. There's no way. How can you get across the family's thanksgivings and confessions and um, petitions and, and all of that in one minute? No, let your children hear you pour out, pour out the, your heart before God. We tried to teach our children to use the ACTS formula. You, I'm sure you're familiar with that. The A stands for adoration. You first begin prayer by telling God how good he is, how great he is, how wonderful his attributes are, etc. How great he is in Jesus Christ. How good and kind he is. How sovereign, how holy, whatever. But you first adore God. Then you confess, C, confess. Then you thank him, T, and then you supplicate. You don't have to follow that exact order, but you, you spread out your needs. Well, as a father, you should be in tune with your kids when you lead them in that prayer. Now, what we did, and you don't have to do this, but what we did, we found it, I found it very helpful, is that we bookended our, our, our family worship with prayer. So I would always pray the opening prayer as the head of the household, as the father. And I would, I would ask my wife when I came home from work, you know, are there any needs? She might say, well, Esther's getting sick. And so I'd remember that in prayer. Or Calvin has a big test tomorrow. I'd remember that in prayer. And then I'd have my wife and my children take turns praying for the closing prayer. When they're three years old, I would take them on my lap and say, okay, now you're gonna do the daddy's prayer, as they called it, at the close. I'll whisper some things into your ear, you just say them. When you're four years old, I'd say to them, now you start the prayer all by yourself. And you just poke me, they're sitting in my lap, poke me in the stomach when you're unstuck and I'll whisper some things again to you, and you say them from four to seven. When they're about seven years old, I'd say, now you take the whole, the whole prayer. Now, I know the Holy Spirit alone can teach them to pray in truth, but I, don't want, I want to teach them even the form of prayer, how a prayer goes so that, that they're not embarrassed to pray in front of their friends when they're seven, eight, nine years old. So they become familiar with praying out loud. How tragic it is when kids grow up and they get married and for the first time they're praying out loud and they don't know how to do it. No, train, train them by your own prayers, but also by teaching them word by word uh, while they're on your lap from the time they're three to about the time they're seven or eight, and then they can handle it on their own. And for singing... Sing doctrinally pure songs. It doesn't make any sense to say we're reformed in our theology and then have them sing Arminian songs. And sing the Psalms first, as well as good classic hymns. But don't forget the Psalms are God's canonical book, a manual of piety in song. 
that exposes, as Calvin put it, the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And the songs, psalms are so theocentric, so God-centered. Sing the psalms and sing with feeling. And sing good hymns too. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not unto men. Make sure your children are singing too, robustly. And then after family worship, as you go to bed that night, pray for God's blessing on your family worship. Just say, Lord, as you get down on your knees together, I hope you do that, get down on your knees together every night with your wife beside your bed. we, We just love doing that. Mary, you pray one night, I pray the next. We go back and forth. And then often we would just say, please bless our feeble efforts in family worship. Or forgive my shortcomings in leading family worship today. Help me to do better tomorrow, Lord. Use family worship for the eternal welfare of our children. So that's the implementation. Very briefly now, what about objections and motivations? Well, objection number one, the big one, our family doesn't have time for this. What? (laughs) Our forefathers would say, Samuel Davies, a great revivalist in the South said this, if you were formed for this world only, there would be force in this objection. But how strange does such an objection sound coming from an heir of eternity? Pray, what is your time given to you for principally but to prepare for eternity? And will you have no time then to help your children prepare for what is the greatest business of their lives? Objection number two, there's no time when we can all get together. Do the very best you can. And I wish, I wish, when one of our children was in college and often missed family worship for a couple years, I wish when they had come home late that night, oh, how I wish I had taken them aside and said, let's just do a quick five-minute family worship between you and me. I didn't do that, unfortunately. But get as many together as often as you can. Our family's too small. No, it's not. Our children are all gone now, and I read in my Bible where two are ga- or three are gathered together, God is in the midst of them. So my wife and I just continue doing family worship as if our kids were there. We ask each other the questions. We read family worship Bible guide every night together. We ask the questions. We talk about them briefly sometimes. But it's sweet. Our family's too diverse for everyone to profit. Not really. When you pray, maybe your little ones won't understand everything, but they get impressions. Your older ones will stand everything, understand everything. When you talk to your young children about the Lord, if the older ones complain, well, Dad, I know that. That's too simple. That's boring. No, no. You just say, look, you're going ha- to be married before you know it, and you're going to have children. I want you to watch how I'm talking to your younger brothers and sisters because you'll soon be in that position. You'll have to do it yourself. And when you ask questions, you do it at the level of the child. So, really, everyone's involved. And and very young children can memorize Psalters. It's amazing. So, yes, they won't get everything of everything, but that's not the point. The point is they're getting impressions and they're learning and they're growing. And then the last objection. I'm not good at leading family worship. 
Well, you don't get good at it by not doing it. You get better at it by doing it and crying out to God to help you. And now with a family worship Bible guy, it's really not that difficult to lead an edifying worship service. George Whitfield, the revivalist, said in the 18th century, when the heart is rightly disposed, it does not demand any uncommon abilities to discharge family worship in a decent and edifying manner. No, maybe you don't do it as smoothly as a minister, but is your heart in it? If your heart is in it, that will speak volumes to your kids. Volumes. And leave impressions behind. All right, finally then, motivations for family worship. Number one, the eternal welfare of your children. Eternal welfare of your children. How critical that is. God has used family worship to save the souls of hundreds of thousands, I would dare say millions of children in church history. I just think of Charles Spurgeon, probably the most famous preacher that ever lived. He said in family worship, his mother used to take him onto his lap and she'd pray over him like this, Lord, thou knowest if these prayers are not answered in Charles's conversion, these very prayers will bear witness against him in the judgment day. He said he was overwhelmed when he heard those prayers and he knew he needed the Lord. God used it for him. So as a father, you want to use every means, don't you? To have your children snatched as brands from the burning. You want to pray with them. You want to teach them. You want to sing with them. You want to weep over them. You want to admonish them. You want to plead with them. You want to invite them. You want to allure them. Remember that in every family worship, you are ushering your children into the very presence of the Most High God. You're seeking to bring the benediction of God down upon them. Through Christ. Do family worship just for this one reason alone, the eternal welfare of your children. But do it secondly for the satisfaction of a good conscience. I love the story of Matthew Henry. When he's on his deathbed, he gets all his kids around him. And he says, um, I'm saying some parting words. I'm going to die very soon now. But there's two things I want to say to you. One is, Will you forgive me for all my shortcomings as a father? And we all have them, don't we? And they all said yes. And then he says, and the second thing is this. Don't any of you dare to meet me on the wrong side of Christ on the judgment day. So, whoa. How does he dare to say that so boldly? Isn't God sovereign in who he saves? Ah, he went on to say this. He said, children, despite all my shortcomings, you know that in family worship, I have lifted up, I have lifted up Jesus Christ every day to you. I have made him beautiful. I have, a, I, I, I have allured you to him. I've invited you to come to him. Don't meet me on the wrong side of Christ. Don't destroy your own soul. You see, he could say that because he had a conscience that at least acquitted him in this aspect of his fatherhood. He did bring daily family worship to his children. What a blessing, what a blessing that is. I was assaulted in Latvia um, while I was uh, speaking there in systematic theology when I went back to my room and I, 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 was, I thought I was in the hands of the mafia. They had me on the floor, they're running a knife up and down my back. I, th I thought I was a dead man. I didn't even pray for my survival because I was sure they were going to kill me right there. And as I lay there, I started thinking about what 
would I say to my children if I had one more chance to speak to them? And don't get me wrong. <laughs> I have lots of shortcomings as a father, and there would have been thousands of things I hadn't talked to them about if it weren't for family worship. But thanks be to God, only because of family worship, only because of going through the Bible from cover to cover over and over again with my children, I couldn't think of anything because the Bible talks about everything. So family worship is an incredible gift to a father to satisfy your conscience. And then thirdly, it's be motivated by its assistance it brings you in child rearing. You know, when kids go from young years to teenage years and they get teenage friends who get very close to them, it's quite possible for a child becomes an adolescent, if there is such a thing as an adolescent, let's just say a teenager, it's, it's quite possible that that young person can pull back away from dad and mom a bit. But if in family worship, you've been talking about sacred, intimate experiences with God, the most valuable things in life, and you've talked to them about uh, the facts of life, you've talked to them about physical things, you've talked to them about spiritual things, you've talked to them about everything in the Bible, it's going to be a lot harder, I tell you, for them to suddenly pull away and clam up and not talk to you about anything. Family worship when your kids are young is like putting money in the bank. You can withdraw it in the teen years and keep using it to grow them and to continue open lines of communication with them. Four, the shortness of time, shortness of time. You know, you've got 365 days a year, 20 years basically, probably before your kids leave your home in general. That's only 7,300 opportunities to teach them the whole Bible in terms of family worship. And those 7,300 opportunities fly by like that. They're gone. Don't wait. Don't skip. Use every opportunity as a gift of God. And then, five, love for God in his church. I've had the privilege of serving three churches in my life. And when I look at the backbone families in my churches that I've served, I mean the families that stay there from generation to generation in general, not that none of them move, it's usually, not always, but usually those who've had robust family worship. Family worship has a way of working together with the church. Now, I want to close this talk by giving you a story. And if you forget everything I say to you tonight, you remember the story, I think you'll get the main thing because this is what it's all about. Developing a close relationship with your children through the things of God so that they cannot live without God, so that they cannot live without worshiping the Lord, like Joshua said. And I'm going to use the example of John Payton. You've heard of him, missionary to the New Hebrides, and uh, Peyton said this. This is a long quotation, so bear with me just three, four minutes, and I'll be done. Peyton says this. When I went away to university, my father walked with me for 
the, la- the six miles of the way. He was carrying his hat in hand, so I know that his lips, which were moving, were moving in prayer for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks, for all speech was vain when we reached the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a full minute in silence. And then he said solemnly and affectionately, God bless you, my son. Your father's God bless you and keep you from evil. And unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the row where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and I saw him still standing with head uncovered. So I know he was still praying for me. Waving my hat goodbye, I was around the corner in an instant, but my heart was still too full, too sore to carry me further. I darted into the side of the road, therefore, and wept for a while. And then rising cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if my father yet stood there. And at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike, looking after me. He had not seen me, however, and after he gazed in my direction for a while, he got down and set his face towards home, began to return, but I noticed his head was still uncovered, his heart still rising in prayer for me, I'm sure. I watched through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve and dishonor such a father and such a mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, the tears, the prayers, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, the walking away head uncovered, have often all throughout my life risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing it 60 years ago as if it happened one hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, my father's parting form would rise before me like that of a guardian angel. It's no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of my father's hopes and in all my Christian duties I might faithfully follow his shining example. And then here it comes. How much my father's prayers at this time impress me, I can never explain, nor can any stranger ever understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul in tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for our every personal need. And all of us children would feel as if we were in the presence of the living Savior, And we learn to love and to know him as our divine friend and savior. But as we would rise from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to prayer, I might be privileged to his prayers, I might be privileged to carry the gospel to the heathen world in some way. No coincidence that John Payton went to the cannibals and that when his wife died and his son died and his little house was burnt down by the cannibals 
And he's afraid they were coming for him to kill him and eat him. He didn't run away. He went up into a tree that night, slept in the tree, and cried out to God. And he said it was as if God spoke to him in large golden letters that filled the sky, I will be with thee always, even to the end of the world. And Peyton persevered there. Thousands of cannibals were converted. But it was all grounded back in his father's, in his words, shining example and prayers and family worship.